Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. This morning, it's my pleasure to be talking to Lisa Allen. In her biography, Lisa says that she is motivated by helping organizations unlock the potential of data for the benefits of all. Previously, she's done that at DEFRA and at the Ordnance Survey, and recently she joined the Open Data Institute. So, Lisa, welcome. Welcome to the GMO podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in data. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, so um, I'm Lisa Allen. I'm currently the head of consultancy at the Open Data Institute, where we cover lots of data programs. My journey into data, I don't think it's a conventional one, actually. So I actually started off with an environmental science degree. And I think over the years, I became an aquatic biologist. And then actually, I ran a team that investigated environmental crime. And it was during that time that we were exchanging intelligence with the police. And I just thought our data quality could be better. So that was the point when I went into head office to take a role in data to make sure the data quality was there. And that was it. That's when my love started. And um, I've done lots of things since, you know, data governance, data quality, data standards, you know, and managing teams of data and analytics. So, yeah, it's been a very varied role and an unusual entry into data. And you were, if I recall correctly, one of the team responsible for publishing something like 10,000 data sets from DEFRA and the Environment Agency back in 2016. Yeah, that's correct. So, um, yeah, I led the Environment Agency into that collaboration. I think that was a really good collaboration that changed us all, making sure that we were opening that data, really challenging ourselves to do things differently. I think for the Environment Agency, if I remember correctly, we'd only published 93 data sets as open and before that time. And after that year, we, we did nearly 2,000. So yeah. a very different approach. Yeah, it was very much, it went from should we publish stuff to why would we not publish stuff? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Really changed the angle on it. Yeah. And that was great. So we're here to talk about your book. And Lisa's written a book which is called The Little Book of Data. And I have to tell anybody who's going to buy it that it really is little. It's 45 pages or something, but it's packed with the sort of advice that when you read it, you think, oh, I knew that. But Probably just getting it all into one compact book makes it accessible to lots of people. And it's described as the first steps to your data transformation. So what prompted you to write that, Lisa? Yeah, so um, I co-authored it with uh, Deborah Gates, who I've worked with for many years. And I think it's really for us that we've been giving the same advice over and over again to people, be that public or private sector. So both Deborah and I are directors of Dharma UK, the Data Management Association. So we get to work with other organisations as well as the stuff we've experienced ourselves in the public service. And I think it was just about, well, there was lockdown, so we had time. And it was really good to try and give that advice to others to impart it because you don't want people to have to go through the challenges that we went through when you can short circuit their learning and make sure that they can just pick it up and go for it. And one of the key things for us is there's lots of big books of data out there right now. And, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of heavy reading. So we wanted to make sure that we were really distilling those key things for people to get them on their journey. Absolutely. And, you know, anybody who has a responsibility for data, for open data, particularly open data and transparency, 
This is an hour's read, maybe. It's a whole series of checklists. It's simple things you can do. It really will make your life easier. I can't recommend it enough. And I'm not getting a commission on the sales that Lisa's made to the book either. So Lisa, for the benefit of everyone listening, can you summarize the key messages in the book? Yeah, so we start off really about the data strategy and the importance of data, but actually the data strategy needs to be linked to your corporate strategy. You know, data doesn't sit in isolation, it's deliver your business outcomes. So we start there and then we move on to the next area, which is about laying solid foundations. So I think in my career, I've seen lots of organizations that all almost want to start with the use. They want to start with the data science, all the stuff that's really, really like considered Gucci, but actually that data scientists spend all their time laying those solid foundations. So we go into those book about those foundational elements that we need to put in there to ensure that, that those data scientists can then pick up and do what they're good at. And that doesn't involve doing all those the data governance side of things to start with. And the last part really is about the culture and understanding that culture is key for this. And some of the issues that people might come across, some of the pitfalls they might, might hear, because actually what they're trying to do is trying to, trying to make a change. And sometimes people can fear change. And that can be for a number of reasons. It can just be basically the change curve, or it could be other things like, you know, that the, they know the data quality is not good enough, or they know they've got the issues, or actually they're just not interested in data. So what are the things you can do to get them on board and really move them forward in their journey? Okay. And um, when you talked about data quality, I remember back, I mean, we've been doing open data now for over a decade. So, you know, it, it's quite a long journey we've all been on. But early on, everyone was concerned about data quality and lots of people didn't want to publish data because it was poor quality or it might be misunderstood or misused. And I just wonder with a decade of reflection, what you think we should be doing with poor quality data? Because everyone has some poor quality data. I think it's about prioritisation, isn't it? Because not every data set needs to be perfect, but there's some that actually, that if they're supporting your outcomes and they're key, then you need to really know what those data sets are and they need to be putting your time and energy into those. There's actually quite a lot of help. So um, I worked with the, the Data Quality Hub for um, the Office of National Statistics. They've just put together like a, a consultancy almost where they can help other government departments to get better with their data. And then there's other things like the Data Quality Dimensions that Dharma released quite a few years ago now, but they still stand. And there's some great books and things out there that can help you with it. But I think it's really about targeting things that, that are key and priorities for you because you can't do all of it. So yeah, that's that's probably that's my main thing I'll start. And I think as for publishing open data and it being a barrier, I think as long as you're putting out there, and I know from personal experience when we did that, when we did that 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 challenge, I released my team released um, data, and that, that was one of my fears. And you know, we were almost monitoring Twitter when the data set went out to see what the response was. But we knew we had quality errors. We knew what that data set was for. And we put that purpose quite clearly on the data set. And the response um, was great. They've published it. That's really good. They know the the errors. We've been informed what purpose it's for. And that was great. So actually, as long as you're really honest with it and you're open, then I think people are really accommodating it because it can't be perfect. And also, different people have different uses for data. So it might be fit for one purpose, but not for another. And saying what your purpose was then helps them to understand that. Fair enough. I think there's always going to be a problem when people repurpose data. And it's something we've been learning over much more than the last 10 years. You create data for one purpose 
and then you use it for other purposes that it wasn't designed for. And inevitably, that can throw up problems, but it doesn't mean that the data wasn't fit for its original purpose. So you've just made me also think, because when you were working at the EA and I was consulting at DEFRA, you know, we were publishing vast amounts of data at that time. How important, and this is getting really geeky, but I can't help it when I'm talking to you, how important metadata is. I mean, because it's like this grown subject. You know, you say metadata people to people, their eyes glaze over, their head sinks, you know. They, they just think it's boring. And, you know, I'm one of these geeks who thinks metadata is the most important thing in the whole data universe. No, I'm with you there. I mean, I always talk about it because it, it, it really frustrates me that the emphasis on the metadata is not the same as it is on the data. Why would you spend all that time making that awesome data and then not have good quality metadata that sits beside it? Beside it? So for me, it's like going to a supermarket and ripping all the labels off the cans and then going, go and find the cans of beans. Oh, that's brilliant. No, that is a brilliant, a brilliant way of explaining it. And and absolutely. And and I remember saying years and years ago, you know, those those magazines that used to do the end of year reviews and they get a dozen people to sort of give their predictions of what would happen in five years' time or something. And they're all completely meaningless. And yeah, we're all distinguished by how wrong we got everything. But on one occasion, I, I was asked to write one of these pieces, and I wrote about metadata, saying that in five or 10 years, and you know we're back in the early 2000s, metadata wouldn't be necessary because Google would have indexed all of the data in such a way that you would be able to find and access any data on the planet that you wanted. And, of course, that's not happened. Do you think it's going to happen, though? I still think it's important to put out that the metadata that goes alongside it. So Google's only going to be able to find if it's going crawling all over your data set and trying to put that context on it. I think still that's quite a human thing, that we need to be able to put those that, that description, that abstract, those findable words in plain English, you know, all those sorts of things that mean that people can find it, especially for discovery metadata, because I think that's where Google can help. But I still think there's more to do that people need to do to enable the machines to actually then find it and index it for people. And as far as technical metadata is concerned, then I think that I think there's still more to do, you know, recording all the lineage and all of that side of things. When it's collected, I think people still have a big role in that. I think obviously standards can help, but I don't think there's a magic bullet right now that, that can help. And I think that organisations do need to really find focus on their metadata because it's really key to, to finding it. I mean, I'd love to know how long people waste trying to find data. It, it, must, it must be, you know, God knows how many hours we all lose. It's it's tens of thousands of man days a year in in the UK. You know, I mean, just in public sector, we the amount of time that people spend looking for data is horrendous. You're right. So let's just talk about some of the the work that you've done, Lisa, rather than the book. You were head of data at Ordnance Survey, and I have to say, when when that was announced, I thought, where did that one come from? Because I didn't see you as a geographer. <laughs> Oh, really? So I think for me, I think geospatial data is just a flavour of data. So you know, I don't favouritise any flavour of data. I think the way you manage it is the same. So yeah, 
I think I've got an environmental background, um, mm. so I think it naturally comes from there, but, it, but it's still data. What was the role of head of data? So I managed a team of location data experts. So my team encompassed things like data standards, data quality, data requirements, um, data science and analytics. And we were really looking to make sure that Ordnance Survey's data um, fit the use cases of today, but also for the future. So you can see there's lots of there's been lots of changes in, in the use cases for data, but also um, geospatial has become a lot more ubiquitous. It's foundational to probably all organisations, you know, and everybody everybody uses geospatial data. Every time somebody gets out their Google Maps or their Apple Maps, that they're using geospatial data. So my team is really about keeping up those use cases. And they were always fascinating. So if you ask them, you know, I want want access to a building because they were catching the requirements. They'd say, what, for a person, for a boat, for somebody with disabilities? So they'd really drill down to make sure they understood those user requirements and converted them into data requirements. And then we'd have the data scientists look at how we could get that data from novel ways from our own data rather than having to go out and capture it or get it from third party. Yeah, it was it was an amazing, amazing team and they do some great stuff. So it was quite product oriented then. It wasn't just standards and metadata, it was quite product focused. Or use yeah, we did, yeah, yeah, we did, yeah. So we did both sides of the, of the team. So there was obviously the the part where we were working on the what, with the geospatial commission on their sponsored work on what the metadata, making it easy to find across the industry. We were doing the public sector geospatial agreement. So that was um, set up to make sure we could serve the whole of um, government with geospatial data. So that's where the product side of things came in to make sure it was suiting those use cases. So yeah, it was it was both sides. Right. And now you've moved to what I guess is the dream job for anybody who works in data You've joined Jenny at the Open Data Institute. What are you yeah. doing there? Yeah, so it might be worth just touching on the Open Data Institute. So I don't Go know on. if people know. So obviously it was set up in 2012 by Sir Tim Mermersley and Sir Nigel Shadbolt, so amazing founders. And our mission really is to work with companies and governments to build an open and trustworthy data ecosystem. So that means we're working with a range of organisations, you know, both public and private to create a world where data works for everyone. So I think that's a mission you know, you and I can yeah. really buy, buy into. So some of the things we, we're working on there is that making sure that we're improving data practices of organisations and that we're building adequate data infrastructure and data use, but we're also tackling challenges the data ecosystem works better. So read that, you know, who people not sharing or what are those challenges? Is it the process, is it technology, is it culture? And we also gather research and evidence to feed into that. So I head up the consultancy team and we work across those areas and it's an expert team. We use our data expertise to offer advice and guidance to deliver those outcomes for those those governments or for companies. And it it really is focusing on that um, data ecosystem that works better for everybody. And I think the work's really varied. So, for example, this week we're in partnership with the Institute of Directors and that's working um, to develop a course for directors on data governance. So it's really trying to expand out why data is important so we can mitigate the risks. And we're really looking about then how they can capitalise on the opportunities. So I think it's that shows that actually it's coming out of just the data community because data actually, and I think the pandemic's shown it, hasn't it, is, is absolutely fundamental to any organisation. So we're trying to expand out that understanding across the piece. But then I was working on some stuff on data assurance and what elements all come together on data assurance as well as input into some work on data ecosystems and what does that look like. 
So, yeah, it's really varied. I'm five weeks in at the moment. Sounds fantastic. And is it international or is it just UK? Yeah, so it's international. We do work. We do work internationally as well. Wow. Gosh. From such a germ of an idea, and it was almost, I mean, it certainly felt back at the beginning as if it was almost, you know, no one could see how this was going to be sustainable. You know, now nine years in, coming up to your 10th birthday, and the Odin Data Institute is growing and flourishing, and it's an amazing success story that's come out of, out of the UK as well. So well done. And send my best regards to everybody there who I know, because it's a lovely organization. So. Normally, when we do these interviews, I always ask people for a topic that they're passionate about, something that they want to get into the conversation. And you said to me that you wanted to talk about DAS. And I thought DAS, not, not washing powder, data as infrastructure. So talk to me about why you're passionate about this topic and what you're thinking of. Yeah, so I've seen it come really out of the pandemic about how critical data as infrastructure is. So I think I think when I think about data as infrastructure, we think about it and as well in the ODI is that it's as critical as roads or railways or electricity, you know, the, the networks that people rely on. And it's there as that critical infrastructure. And I think we need to really get to that conversation where we're, where we're changing it. And I think sometimes actually it get, data gets mischaracterized, doesn't it, as the new oil, which which I don't think is is helpful. It's it's not oil, you know. It can be reused, unlike oil. And there's loads of things that go wrong with that analogy. But as infrastructure, it just shows the criticality of it. And if you think about it, how we've had to tackle the pandemic and or restart our economies, there's some basic data that we all need to do that. And it can be about people. It can be about where they live. It can be about companies. And I think probably more traditional terms, we would refer to it as um, reference data or poor reference data. But I think it's getting more traction as considering it as infrastructure and how we need to build upon that. So, yeah, it's one of those things for me that if we can understand that more and think about how the data flows from different organisations, then we can see how it all fits into that data infrastructure. So it's almost like the roads. Somebody had to build the roads, didn't they, for, for the UK so we can all, mm -hmm. all around the world, or so we can all drive on them. And it's the same for data. There's some of those poor reference data or data as infrastructure that we actually need there. And it surpasses just the technology. It's not just about the technology. It's about the practices. It's about how we look after the policies, all the things that go together to make sure that actually we're looking after that data or stewarding that data. So, yeah, it's a really interesting topic for me that we need to start thinking more about. Well, you should be talking, I'm sure you are, with my pal Bob Barr, because he's been talking about core reference data sets now for more than a decade. And he's been arguing, you know, particularly about the geographic reference data sets, because they're, they're one of the foundational data sets that so many different things are built on and that they need to be seen as a national asset and be maintained as a national asset and free, free and open to use. And of course, I was just thinking when you were saying that of the disaster that is the postcode. <laughs> yeah, so there are some issues there, isn't there? Well, the postcode is, I mean, it's before we were talking about how data is produced for one purpose and then used for another purpose. Mm -hmm. And that problems occur when you try and use a data set for different purposes. And if ever there's a classic case of that, it's the postcode, which was designed by the post office to allow people to 
put bits of paper through slots in the front door of your house or office. And then gradually it became utilized for demographics. It got utilized for all sorts of things. And it's become this ubiquitous location code. And somehow in in the time that the post office or the Royal Mail was being privatized, not the post office, the Royal Mail, they decided in their wisdom to let the Royal Mail keep the intellectual property rights on the postcodes. And so to this day, we have challenges associated with freely using postcodes and the locations associated with those postcodes. And if ever there's a foundational data set, I think that's one of them that we should be addressing. <laughs> Excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good pun. Yeah, no, no I'd, I'd agree with you. It does cause yeah. issues. But it's also how people are using that data because actually you could see that some people are using it through the analysis. And if you're using it as a, as a geography, it makes it really difficult because actually, yeah, the purpose was to post letters. It mm. wasn't to look at how many people are aware because actually mm. that not all the postcode areas are actually even in their distribution. Mm. So you can come up with some really weird decisions based on using that data for geographical um, analysis when actually it's for posting letters. And, yeah. and there's other, there's better ways to do that spatial analysis. But yeah, yeah I think as uh, addressing is one of those core reference data or core data infrastructures for the UK. Yeah, I was um, a non-exec on the board of Open Addresses, which was an ODI initiative, and that I won't say it failed, but we weren't able to deliver the open address data set that we wanted to because of the intellectual property concerns that were raised by various bodies, including at least one that we've mentioned. So it is a foundational data set, and I think you're right, treating data as infrastructure is really important. And I also like the fact that you partly trashed that, that aphorism about data being the new oil or whatever people are calling it. I mean, it's apart from the fact that uh, you know, oil is the cause of many of the problems that we have on the planet at the moment. Uh, data is about people, or very often is about people. And the idea that we're sort of consuming bits of people and everything and is quite, yeah, and in a way, that is what some of the data economy is doing. You know, we are feeding off people's personal content. There is an inverse to that, of course, which is that with better data, we could have done better things in this pandemic. For example, I just remembered a friend who is a retired teacher was talking about the fact that teachers hadn't been prioritized for vaccination and suggesting that that might be a political decision or something. And... I think it turned out when when people looked into it that the reason teachers couldn't be prioritised for vaccination was because the health service doesn't have any way of identifying people's occupations. So you couldn't actually have the health service targeting a profession. I mean, whether it should have been teachers or, or some other profession is irrelevant. The health service doesn't know what, what people's professions are. Therefore, they can't target based on profession. They know their ages and they can link risk to age and they know medical conditions so they can target on those things. But it was just an example of how if we had better data and if that data was, in connect, was more interconnected, we would have been able to do smarter things during the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the case. I think, I think you're right there. That's, that's where the, there's some data gaps in there. But I also think it's the conversation about the data ethics, isn't it? Something we're really keen on about the ODI about 
you know, the data minimization and ensuring that companies that are collecting the data are doing so ethically and how they're going to use that. So there is a real there is a real debate in there because actually you can go for more and more data, but why? So yeah, there's definitely a balance in making sure that we, we get that that right. So we use that data and we use it ethically so people can have trust in it and yeah, and faith in it. But I guess if you had, dare I say, a unique identifier for an individual, you could keep a lot of data tightly locked up in silos and have some permissions mechanism which enabled that data to be joined using a unique identifier rather than it all just getting collected in great big buckets. Yeah, and I think I think identifier is always really useful, isn't it? I think it's one of those things I know in the past when I've looked at identifiers and looking at uh, standards. From the standards perspective, I thought that's a really good idea. And that's brilliant. From a data world, it works perfectly. It means my quality is better. I can do more with it. And then someone just said to me, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and I was, and it really made me think. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, from an architecture and a data perspective, it definitely was the right thing to do. But actually, ethically, is it the right thing to do? So, yeah, there's just those considerations. It doesn't mean you don't do things. It just means you think about them. Yeah. And that's where the Locust Charter, which was announced a few couple of months back, is really good in getting people to at least start to think about those things at an early stage. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We've got a data ethics campus as well that we've been in now to get people to go through. It was one of my induction actually at the ADI was to go on a data ethics course, which is brilliant, you know, as part of an induction to go through that and really getting you to start thinking about those things. Because it is easy just to come from one perspective when actually you need to consider the broad range. So wrapping up now, if I was going to ask you to give me one thought, you know, having Having said that I made a great blunder in forecasting five, ten years forward, in terms of data infrastructure and the work that you're doing at the ODI, what changes do you think we might see in the next five to ten years? Oh, I'd hate to say that actually the pandemics accelerate a number of them. I think we'll start consider, as considering data as more of, of that ecosystem. And what I'd really like to see is those players, well, you know, the data stewards who can or data institutions sharing that data into that ecosystem so we can start seeing how it all comes together. So we don't sit there hoarding data, repeating it, actually how we come together in that collaboration, that more working together and acknowledging that those flows, we start to see the flows already. But I think that's really going to pick up as, as we start to work together. And I think really making sure that we're looking after data as an asset in that, because actually if other people are using it, I think we're more likely to start taking better care of it because there'll be other eyes on it. So, yeah, I'd like to see that flow and that ecosystem all come together. Brilliant. And that's a great point to finish. Lisa, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they contact you? Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can find me on Twitter. So it's I um, underscore am underscore Lisa Allen. So you can find me on Twitter too. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope we didn't get too geeky for the audience, but at least we've had fun talking about data. Great talking to you. Thanks very much. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. 
You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.